This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go behind the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mukhtar. One year ago this month, Myanmar's fledgling democracy was struck down by a military coup led by General Min Ong Lang, who currently heads the caretaker government. The premise of the military takeover of government was that the elections held in November 2021 were fraudulent, despite a lack of evidence to back those claims. The military junta has pledged that new elections will be held by 2023, but the promise has not assuaged Burmese people who overwhelmingly supported Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy, or NLD. So will the political unrest in Myanmar stretch on, and what could change the equation for the military junta? For an update on the state of play in Myanmar one year on from the coup, we speak to James Gomez, Regional Director at the Asia Centre based in Bangkok. James, good morning. Thanks very much for joining me today. Good morning and happy to be uh, back at BFM So in the early days after the coup, the world watched as protesters took to the streets daily in cities like Yangon and Mandalay. The military has cracked down on protesters, with the UN estimating at least 1,500 civilians killed in the past year. How is the situation on the ground today, as far as we know? Have protests been successfully quelled by the crackdown? Uh, The protests are still there, but perhaps not at the intensity and frequency and and being so widely spread as in the uh, initial uh, time period of the coup, following the coup. Uh, this is quite normal uh, because uh, protests generally, you know, evolve over time and they do, uh, you know, dissipate uh, uh, due to fatigue, uh, due to time down, due to resources and so on. And, and that is what we see in Myanmar. Uh, it doesn't mean the, the protest or the resistance is not that it's there, it's just that it has evolved. Uh, but we did see that the uh, just a few days ago on the anniversary of the coup that there was you know some public uh, rallying uh, in terms of you know just giving a signal uh, the protesters are still around. Uh, so how have they evolved? <clears throat> Where they have evolved is they have seen, especially uh, the protesters uh, are largely youth. Uh, they have seen that the protests are not effective uh, in, in in the way they would like like it to be, which is to, to uh, you know, uh, have a regime change, get rid of the military. So they have now sort of gone into the arms uh, uh, movement, the arms resistance. So this is where it is. So, so the landscape is a little bit uh, different now. Uh, first, firstly, uh, because, you know, uh, the traditional resistance were all at the periphery by at the ethnic state, mm. and and now we have some immersion into them uh, through through the protesters evolving into you know um, uh, armed expression. Can I ask how widespread is armed resistance, James? Uh, because as you mentioned, uh, Myanmar has always been in some form of conflict um, with ethnic based uh, armed groups. But um, would you say now that uh, this has has it grown much bigger with uh, groups maybe bound by political ideology instead? Uh, I think the situation is still evolving. I think uh, one term that we often hear uh, is uh, Myanmar is Myanmar in a state of civil war, and that requires some. Uh, technical explanation because uh, a civil war has some uh, you know clear parameters and definition. Essentially, it is a, a intrastate conflict uh, 
pruned uh, organized armed groups where they inflict uh, they inflict uh, casualties on one another. Mm. So what we saw in the early days, it was one way. Um, uh, you mentioned earlier the number of 1,500, and, you know, uh, and it was the army, you know, sort of inflicting uh, uh, casualties uh, on, on civilian population, and including, you know, uh, some of the uh, periphery arms uh, resistance group. Yeah. I think uh, what we see now is the long resistance. And uh, so the, the best way to, to, to describe the situation, Myanmar, it, 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 it's now stuck in the mode of a long resistance. Mm. And, and we will have to see how organized uh, the, uh, the armed resistance is uh, and, and does it evolve beyond the traditional periphery ethnic-based uh, arms groups. Uh, into something that also includes the larger Burman population. Okay. At the moment, uh, we seem to see uh, uh, it is so, partly because of the movement of the young people who have evolved their political expression beyond just protest mm. uh, by you know, also getting into uh, the arms uh, 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 conflict. Mm. Right? Now, uh, so because it's a long resistance, I think the stage is set uh, for it to, you know, gestate and possibly grow into uh, a civil war. Okay. And, and I think that's uh, uh, where we are at. at mm. Could I get, um, what do we know about the humanitarian and healthcare situation there, James, given that the world is still in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic, but at the same time, as you said, we're seeing this pockets of armed resistance grow uh, bigger there. Yeah, uh, we, we will, <clears throat> healthcare has, has always been seen in context with Myanmar. Myanmar, even in a non-conflict environment, um, its health indicators have always been poor and low. Now, what, what COVID has done, and it's done so for many countries as well, and, 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 a, and a lot worse in uh, Myanmar, is that it has, uh, you know, accentuated the situation. One, you have uh, the doctors, the professional uh, uh, staff, the doctors, the nurses. Uh, so they have also, you know, uh, uh, stopped work. Uh, and, but they have gone underground as best, best as they can uh, to provide, uh, you know, healthcare support. But obviously, uh, that's starting from a very, very uh, poor position. Mm. But, but the key thing would be around, you know, the COVID pandemic and how, how, uh, how it's being held. Uh, in the early days, we didn't hear much numbers. Uh, now we, we hear some numbers that, you know, uh, media put out, especially uh, media based in Myanmar. So mm-hmm. they say COVID, uh, the infection uh, in Myanmar is about half million infected, but, you know, most have recovered. Um, uh, I don't have the, 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 the daily uh, accurate figures, but, you know, the, the last media reports have put that's at 19,000. Mm. Now, most countries around the world and the region are reporting cases in Omicron, uh, but the numbers, you know, as of end of the year, were only placed very modestly at about uh, a touch over 100. So we are not sure how accurate uh uh, those things are mm. uh, one, uh, you know, uh, uh, sector within those who need healthcare are really children, uh, women, and older folks, and and, and 
that we need to give more attention to them uh, was clearly articulated in the Security Council memo issued just a couple of days ago. So, so that's really, um, you know, the humanitarian and healthcare situation. It's always been dire, but of course made worse by this current situation. Right. And I guess, as you mentioned, we can never really be sure if the figures that we're getting uh, is accurately reporting what's happening on the ground. I suppose it's safe to assume that it could be worse than what is coming out at the moment. Yes, uh, certainly. So, uh, yeah, so this is uh, one of the problems. And uh, that's why, you know, having access uh, into the country, Mm. uh, independent access will allow us uh, to get some of this uh, information because, Mm. um, the information that we get uh, is not independently verified, mm. and so there, there's some element of uh, you know poor trust in the in the information that's coming out. Can we turn to what the Myanmar military has in mind? Like, what is their strategy in retaking, trying to take over the government? Yeah, because it appears that they have miscalculated the level of resistance that they would encounter. And you've said that um, we're heading into a period of long resistance in Myanmar. How does this affect uh, the military's plans to regain absolute control? Well, we will have to go back to the, the last two previous uh, election results, uh, um, the military and its, you know, uh, supported party uh, have not performed well. So at the ballot box, it was quite clear the military was not the favourite. Pre-COVID, when you are on the ground and you can interact, you you know, um, the the perception, the energy towards the military is negative broadly. So uh, part of this strategy was to kind of arrest the declining uh, PR uh, that the military was facing, uh, but but also with it uh, a slide in legitimacy and, and possibly power uh, as things shifted. So this is in their strategy. Mm. Now to understand the, uh, the military and, and its possible longevity, we need to uh, turn our attention to the role of the military in Southeast Asia, in countries like Thailand, uh, Huns, uh, I mean, Hun Sen came from the military uh, in Cambodia, in the uh, uh, in Indonesia, and also in the background in the Philippines. So uh, even in a city state like Singapore, you can see uh, the the military, you know, uh, uh, bureaucratically also fills uh, political position. Mm. So in terms of the the longevity of the military, that's something difficult to shake off. That is why you will see that, you know, any form of uh, articulation of, you know, uh, trying to interlock with the, uh, uh, with Myanmar and trying to uh, come up with a solution, all players do include dialogue with the military Mm. because you just can't wish them away. Uh, It's because the military uh, works on a kind of a barrack system. It's a fraternity of boys and men, essentially. So uh, they get socialized, first of all, uh, in the barracks where they get their training. Thereafter, to the region where they are posted. Uh, so from that, uh, you know, that develops a network, a fraternity, and then they also now evolve uh, and move themselves into the bureaucracy. 
So uh, if you have an opportunity to, to sort of go to Napidor and meet the bureaucrats, you know, serving the post secretaries and all, these would be lean men trained in combat who now uh, put on civilian clothes. And you can tell them, uh, you know, apart from the traditional long-serving, desk-sitting civil servants who tend to be a little bit podgy sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, so, so that's where it is, and that's why, uh, you know, um, the, the military, uh, uh, unfortunately, will be part of the dialogue. So they are very entrenched in the system. I'm speaking to James Gomez, Regional Director at Asia Centre based in Bangkok. We'll have more from this conversation after a quick break. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters. I'm Shazana, and with me on the show today is James Gomez, Regional Director at the Asia Centre based in Bangkok. We're discussing the situation in Myanmar one year since the February 2021 coup. And just before the break, James, you were we were talking about um, how entrenched the military is in the political system of countries like Myanmar. Let's now turn to the civilian government that was ousted. Now, the National Unity Government was formed in exile, and I believe that um, France and the EU have recognized them as the legitimate government. But why has the broader international community been reluctant to recognize the NUG? Uh, first of all, the NUG, I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, doing the hard yards, trying to get recognition. Uh, we have to recognize uh, its structure is dispersed, uh, its members, you know, around the world. Uh, and uh, safety is, uh, is of concern. So from an organizational point of view, there, there's also that challenge um, uh, in terms of uh, how, how, how structured and, you know, how altogether the NUG is. And, and to some extent, that would explain uh, why, you know, they haven't gotten uh, overwhelming support. Uh, it's also political in the sense that, you know, um, diplomacy is two-faced and uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, Countries, especially from the region, uh, have deep roots uh, in Myanmar, uh, deep relations uh, with uh, Junta. Uh, uh, at a personal level, they know their children. Uh, for many years, the children of the Junta first, you know, uh, studied in uh, in Thailand, holidayed, uh, enjoyed. Later on, they moved to Singapore uh, from from medical, uh, um, uh, you know support, uh, going for treatment, sending the children to school. And so the, the roots are deep. Uh, relationship, uh, it's business, it's money, it's access to political influence. So that is why um, uh, the, the number of, you know, uh, governments, you know, fully recognized in, in, in UG is small. Uh, usually how these things work is when there is a shift towards the resistance politically or, or in terms of power, in terms of, you know, uh, being able to score uh, more casualties, perhaps against the military or, you know, when the uh, uh, deflections, you know, uh, the, the detractors uh, leaving the, the Myanmar police and military mm. uh, shifts uh, substantially uh, as opposed to the sporadic deserters that we have now, mm. uh, uh, that's when I think uh, the legitimacy for NUG and the number of governments supporting it will increase. So, so, uh, so this is the politics, international politics, it's diplomacy, 
Uh, so that's what is at play now. So uh, it, it's a wait and see game in terms of uh, you know, for the NUG and that on, on, and on that front. On on that note, James, how much influence does the NUG have over the armed resistance with Myanmar? Given the fact that, as you mentioned, they're dispersed in other countries, have they managed to unite just all the different parties, which include the ethnic armed groups as well, under one banner? It's often difficult to control ground forces uh, from afar. So I think how the NEG had, you know, sort of tried to make itself relevant is to issue a comment, a statement about, you know, uh, cautiously supporting uh, the arms resistance and and its representatives have uh, explained uh, their rationale for doing so. Uh, They have said... uh, they have cautiously supported the armed resistance simply because they want the armed resistance, you know, to follow international law in terms of how uh, prisoners of war are treated, as well as you know, uh, vulnerable communities such as you know, women and children. So uh, that's how they have articulated uh, their support, uh, and this is more to signal uh, to 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 those you know. Uh, resisting on the ground, that they, they also do have uh, the support from the NUG. Otherwise, you know, uh, it'll be very, very distant. Mm. So that's that's where it stands uh, right now. Okay. And you were explaining, James, just how entrenched the military is um, in various ways, not just the political system within Myanmar, but the fact that, um, you know, families of the junta have also ties with other countries as well. At this point, um, what do you see as the pain points for the military junta? What are, are there any levers that um, uh, the international community can pull to put pressure on them um, to come to a resolution? Well, there are two things to start off any, any authoritarian government, uh, whether it's you know, a political government or a military government. There are two things to, to kind of squeeze them on. First is the access to financial resources. And the second is uh, monopoly and supply of weapons. So these are the two things that the international community has tried to do by placing sanctions and, you know, a few few other sanctions were also announced. But the coalition of the willing is small, uh, meaning the US, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, this other standard countries, I think we have also France coming in doing its own part. So so the coalition of the willing is small uh, on that front. So hence, um, uh, the military junta is being sustained Mm. on these two fronts. So as long as you do business, so if you're a member of ASEAN, you know, and if you articulate that, oh, uh, the military should stop hurting the uh, civilian population, so on and so forth, mm. uh, that, that that's not good enough, I think, because they still do business. I see. So, so no matter how much you articulate, you know, issue statements and you know appoint this envoy or the other mm. as long as you continue to do business you feed the regime the Jake. second thing is mm-hmm. uh, sorry i'll just finish the second thing is the supply of arms and here uh, i think china and russia uh, russia continues to train uh, the, the elite uh, military forces specialist training uh, china is supplying arms but but what most people don't know 
is China bets on all sides. Mm. So they also supply to the rebel groups. So this is what, you know, uh, most people, when they discuss about arms and so on, they're not clear. Uh, you know, it, it's a traditional gambling approach. Mm. You leverage, you bet on all, right? right? So so that's also why, you know, I think uh, the situation will kind of continue uh, in this manner for a while. James, unfortunately, we have one more minute left on the clock. So maybe very quickly, you can, what's your read on the dynamics in ASEAN on this? Because you talked about it earlier, ASEAN can say one thing, and they have this five point plan in place. But if they don't have the um, political will to withdraw economic ties to Myanmar, um, it may not, it may not amount to much. Uh, what do you think ASEAN can do or will do um, to address the situation in Myanmar, especially with Cambodia as a uh, chair at the moment? Yeah, with Cambodia being a chair, you know, its days are numbered from the day start. So, you know, Hun Sen really has 10 and a half months on the clock and thereafter the, the ball goes to Indonesia. So, and Hun Sen has his own domestic problem with, you know, a local election and a general election next year, you know, and transition into power. I think ASEAN traditionally has not delivered. Uh, and, and and I think beyond rhetoric, we, we can't see anything much. Mm. Uh, so, and I think uh, that's the way it's going to be. Even though it, it's been given pole position as the one to be the interlocutor, but, you know, our experience has shown uh, that we cannot deliver. All right. So, so I think that that's where it is. James, on that note, unfortunately, we have to call this, uh, we have to end this call, but thank you so much for your uh, insights today. I've been speaking to James Gomez, Regional Director of the Asia Center based in Bangkok on the situation in Myanmar one year on from the coup. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, and then it's over to Enterprise, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.